0: Hello, and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that usually looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. How you doing today, Sean? Well, I'm nervous, Brian, but super as always, nonetheless. Nervous? Nervous about what? Well, it's the first week of November, isn't it? Uh, yes, this episode is coming out in the first week of November, so clearly you're nervous because we have tickets to go see Glenda Jackson play King Lear at the Old Vic on the 8th of November. I can't think of any other impending event that might, you know, keep you up at night make you break out in hives, anything. Yeah, well, Lord knows I didn't either when I booked those tickets for a perfectly ordinary night of the week, did I? <laughs> For those who were uh, buried under some kind of rock, what are you referring to? You mean a block of granite, <laughs> just <laughs> like Lincoln Chafee. <laughs> yeah, it's November- Anybody who remembers Lincoln Chafee gets a bonus point from us. So I get a bonus point. That was a long time ago, I Lincoln w- Chafee.
1: It was a long time ago. Yeah, it's November 8th. Shortly after you listen to this podcast, we will hopefully be coronating Queen Hillary Clinton as <laughs> Empress of the Federal States. Of America, uh, or else we will be uh, scuttling down to our bunkers <laughs> uh, when Herr Trump gets <laughs> to
0: power. Well, I suppose then that considering the impending and very American apocalypse that is upon us, it seems sensible that for this third episode of our miniseries, The Male Gaze, we are looking at a Western, perhaps the true American mythology. Today's film will be Howard Hawks' first Western, Red River, starring John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. If you already are listening to this podcast and are about to turn it off because you think there's no way I could be interested in a Western, this is the film that when I saw it sold me on Westerns, and it is also the film I think most cited by people who say, well, I don't like Westerns. But I do like Red River, and we could maybe talk about why that is. Before we do, though, Sean, you haven't seen this movie. Do you like Westerns? So I'm going to go
1: ahead and say, yes, I do like the Western, but don't ask me any follow-up questions.
0: <laughs> we will now have <laughs> ten minutes of silence before we watch the film. No, I can't ask you a follow-up? No, no, you can, but what I mean is that I haven't got enough to back that up. Well, you and I, we could return to an anecdote. You and I, memorably, it was one of the most memorable film-going experiences of my life. Yeah, it was. So, was we saw it? a Western together. Do you want to describe the unlikely location in which we went to see... The searchers. Yeah, so we had been in
1: Portugal on holiday in Lisbon, we were having a really nice time. You know, we'd been to the beach, we'd eaten lots of food. But we had one night where we thought, you know what, let's just go and see a film. And around the corner from us was a very nice uh, cinema, practically tucked away, you almost wouldn't notice it. It was was new, and it recently opened. And they were showing the searchers, and we went up to buy a ticket. Portugal being Portugal, everything is late. Yeah, it was was like 11pm. Yeah, it was 11.30 in fact. And we got up there, went straight up to the counter, like, we'd like a ticket for the Searchers, please. And the woman said, tomorrow. And I was like, no, tonight. And she was like, well, I was just about to close. And I was like, oh no, in that case, we'll come back tomorrow. And I'll never forget this. She said, tonight's fine. I get paid very
0: well for this job. (laughs) So this uh, cinema had booked an eleven thirty p.m. showing of a movie from the nineteen fifties. Yeah, in a glorious restoration. Yeah, beautifully restored print. We then sat. As the only two people in a Portuguese movie theatre and watched The Searchers with subtitles in Portuguese. Yeah. While the entire cinema stayed open to allow us to watch that. And this is one of those cinemas
1: that actually had a balcony as well. <gasps> and we, we sat in the middle of the theatre, you know?
0: <laughs> now, Sean really liked the movie. I liked it as well. I'd seen it before. But I think probably there's something about the setup that, like, we had to like this movie because the entire business was being held open just to allow us to watch it. The thing about The Searchers,
1: which really made an impact to me, was that I loved that I was able to view it as a piece of historical racism, effectively. Mm. Mm -hmm. To view it as a piece of skewed history, a very particular... Gaze, as it were at a time and place and situation and people a frontier family have their youngest daughter kidnapped by the comanche uh, native americans in a raid and a group of men led by john wayne searched for years years and years to find this girl who and- turns out to be natalie wood <laughs> yeah she grew up to be natalie wood like I mean, it's so funny being in a command tribe for so many years that her makeup was really on point, wasn't it? Um, but the thing about The Searchers
0: is that it is a breathtaking piece of cinema. It is stunning. Maybe to leave the plot of The Searchers behind, because actually I think you're going to find that Red River and The Searchers have kind of somewhat similar elements thematically, and they both star John Wayne. It's interesting what you talk about the racism of The Searchers, and generally the racism of the Western in general is hotly debated.
1: And that's kind of why I'm so intrigued by the Western, is that it's it's an American art form which really invites scrutiny. Absolutely. Because it is also populist entertainment, but it invites a real analysis of the politics of the time it was made and the time it reflects because they are essentially historical films
0: well yes and no query whether the 20th century versions of the history of the west have any basis in historical reality are they more the mythology that mid-century America wanted to tell itself of its origin. You know, going on what you just
1: said there, like, what is the relationship of the mid-century Western in terms of the stories it told and the society in which it came from?
0: Well, I mean, I'm no expert. Obviously, it goes back to the silent era. There were silent Westerns, and Westerns all the way through the 30s, and Red River, which you're gonna see, is the late 40s, then these kind of expansive cinemascope technicolor Westerns. So this is in color? This film, Red River, that we're about to see? Yeah. No, the title is Deceptive, Sean. It is not in colour. Oh, Oh, no. What? What's wrong with pristine, beautiful black and white? No, no. I mean, what is the... No, I'm really disappointed now. The Western lives for colour. Technicolour. No, no. Howard Hawks specifically did not want to make this movie in Technicolour. He thought that Technicolour of the time of the 40s was way too garish and not appropriate. And actually, the cinematography recalls the photographs of people like Ansel Adams of kind of, of the beautiful shots of nature. So, you know, this is a movie that has to be in black and white. I, I have to say, Red River and The Searchers are very different kinds of movies, and I think they reflect maybe the different sensibilities of John Ford and Howard Hawks, mm. which we can talk about. I think they reflect the fact that while John Wayne is the protagonist of both, Red River also has as secondary male lead a very different actor, Montgomery Clift. So Montgomery Clift, as I know, uh, was an early uh, adopter of method acting. John Wayne, of course, was a big star at the time. But when Red River came out, people said, in fact, John Ford said, I never knew the son of a bitch could act. People credit Red River as the first movie where John Wayne actually played a complex character, and in a sense, you wonder whether that has to do with something about him being paired with this young whippersnapper, who also happened to be bisexual and queer, and you know, as we all know... That's and it, confirmed, isn't it? Yeah, definitely confirmed. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful Monty Clift was indeed a tortured mid-century bisexual, it was in a best friend slash intense love affair that never was consummated with the most glamorous fag hag of all time, Elizabeth Taylor, tragically drank himself through his depression, was disfigured in a car crash, and his life and his career ended far too soon. But before they did, he gave us some of my favorite films and performances. Basically, if I could bring anyone back from the dead for a beautiful, romantic night, it would be Montgomery Cleft. Sorry,
1: Sean. Would you have... I don't care. Do you have to talk him into having sex with you? Do you think? <sighs> That's part of it. You can bring him out to life. I don't know. Maybe if you. I offered
0: him some whiskey and and, and Liz was there, we, yeah. we could have a kiki Liz's together. Watching. Maybe spraying myself in a bit of white diamonds would help. If you got if you got a bio- bottle lying around somewhere? Actually, I had a bottle of, of
1: uh, blue sapphires I used to carry around. Is that her other? Yeah, there was one one of the other ones. We found it in our shed. I remember saying, did you know Elizabeth Taylor made perfumes to my mom? And she was like... Yeah, we've got one. I think it's in your father's shed, actually. And her bringing I me mean, outside and finding it, we had one of those Irish sheds, which was a dry stone shed, you know? Uh-huh.
0: And in the middle of this workstation was a bottle of Zotero perfume. And Your mother wonders what turned you gay. Don't know, yeah. Uh, Shani, I hear that you do a, a John Wayne impression. Well, I mean, I haven't done it in quite a while, so... Go.
1: John Wayne talks a bit like this... Get up there on your horse, and ride up into the night. That's quite good. That's yeah. quite good. So that's basically Robin Williams' impression from The Birdcage. <laughs> but the thing is, once I
0: see John Wayne, we'll both be doing. I'm, I'm, it. I am yeah. able to do it. Yeah. yeah. So we just went on a long rifted. <laughs> like, okay, yeah yes. Let me let me watch it and we'll see it. Okay. We just went on a long riff that involved Elizabeth Taylor and a lot of other things. But I think somewhere a few minutes ago, you asked me about the Western as a historical phenomenon. And I had a beloved English teacher, um, who was also a cinephile, at Mr. Kerner. And he said, you can't understand America until you understand the Western. And he said, in particular, you can't understand the presidency of Ronald Reagan without the Western. Mm. And so... You know, I think as a queer male growing up, it was like, what is this thing that's about men and guns and the frontier? It seems to have no interest to me. But Red River, when I first saw it, maybe it was the presence of queer Monty Clift in the mix here. Whatever it was, I found a way in to this movie. And what you're saying about the racism and the troubling subtext that the Western represents... I would argue that The Searchers, yeah, maybe it's a racist film, but it's also a film that seems to be aware of its moral problems, right? The John Wayne character in The Searchers seems to have no sympathy for the Comanche Indians who have taken and raped Natalie Wood, and he also seems to not want to bring her back into the civilized life of the family. He, the theme of The Searchers, I guess, is that the West is won by men who are loners, who are brutal, who don't operate by law, and then those men are succeeded by civilized people who Mm. come in. But those civilized people are sort of too weak to be able to battle the frontier. So you have this first generation of men who have to win the frontier so that women and families and towns and city slickers can move in after them. So how does that explain the greatest lazy blowhard of them all, Donald Trump? (laughs) Because Obama should follow after him with that logic. So like every sort of right-wing demagogue in American life, he's looking backward to a time where supposedly America was strong, America was number one, the moralism was black and white, and the kind of city-slicker philosophizing, and it has to be said, racial impurity, of the Obama presidency is something that we don't want to live for, you know? And, I mean, the ascendancy of Ronald Reagan is very much built on that kind of looking backward nostalgia. It's mourning in America. Again, I think that's what my English teacher, Mr. Kerner, was getting at. So, Sean, this movie that we're about to see, why have we put it into the category of the male gaze, you might say? Because you fancy Montgomery Clift. No, that is not the only reason. The first reason that you've probably ever seen a clip from this film, and I have, He's in The Celluloid Closet, the documentary about homoeroticism in the movies. Get out, have I? Yeah, this is probably the most widely seen clip from Red River, even among people who've never seen the film. Is it some kind of, like, daddy-son thing? Well, there's a daddy-son plotline, for sure, but there is a scene where Monty Clift and one of these other cowboys, whose name as an actor I can't remember, take out their pistols and are fondling each other's pistols and passing their pistols back together, and it is, like, impossible to watch this clip and not think of some kind of burgeoning homosocial slash homoerotic subtext between them.
1: You know what I don't understand, okay? When I was in university, I did a lot of psychoanalysis in in terms of cultural analysis. And the reason is because I was so curious as to why, you know, conscious, sentient, thinking human beings were were somehow unaware to the incredibly Freudian, phallocentric vision of the world, the fondling of pistols
0: Well, we just, just mean, <laughs> so gay. In our last episode, we were talking about the fondling of oil turrets or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. but yeah. to be fair, Douglas Sork knew what he was doing. Well, I think Howard Hawks probably did too, although he denied it. When people were asking about the homoeroticism of Red River, he said, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. But th- that clip, I remember it being memorably used by Jon Stewart in the 2005 um, Oscar montage which you might recall, everyone thought Brokeback Mountain was going to win Best Picture, and they edited together this montage of, like, moments from Westerns that seem pretty gay. I don't remember that. Yeah. Well, Let me tell you some Westerns I've seen. Okay? Go.
1: My darling Clementine. Mm-hmm.
0: Pretty gay title. Old. I know another one you're going to say. The the campest of all Westerns, starring Joan Crawford. Oh, yeah, I've seen Johnny Guitar, Johnny course, Guitar.
1: Yeah. I've seen uh, Duel in the Sun. Pretty gay. She's also pretty gay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. And also very female driven. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've seen The Searchers, like we said. Have you seen Unforgiven? No. No, I haven't. That might be it.
0: Well, let me just quickly, because you mentioned daddy-son issues. So John Wayne is this tough, rugged cowboy who, there is a disaster, which is a, a massacre that's perpetrated by Indians. Native Americans. And we
1: we can use the terms
0: interchangeably because people know how about the term, culturally sensitive. How about types? the term injuns. <laughs> can we say that? Well, Inja. <laughs> so the sole survivor of this massacre is a young boy who Wayne adopts as a kind of surrogate son. Oh, I see where this is going. And guess who the boy grows up to be? Monty Cliff. Monty Clift. You know, what a a get-out-of-jail-free card that it's an adopted child. He grows up to be Monty Clift, and in a kind of Oedipal struggle, they eventually become cattle ranchers. They go on this epic cattle ride, across the Chisholm Trail. Rawhide? Well, yeah, it's a bit of rawhide. And they bring on a couple other cowboys, including the brilliant Walter Brennan, who has one of the great voices of any character actor ever. I think there's probably also a Robin Williams impression of him. So if you do John Wayne in the second half, I promise everyone I'll do Walter Brennan. Okay. As Monty grows into maturity, he has to start to question the morals and that kind of growing megalomania of his father figure, who he's always looked up to, and it becomes an edible struggle where the, the son has to battle against the father. As we watch it, it's interesting to ask, like, as a historical document, how aware is this movie of the concept that the westward expansion of white civilizations in the Americas was part of stealing land from others? Is that American foreign policy? Yeah, but it's told from that perspective, but I think I would argue with a with a self-conscious awareness of the moral ambiguity of that. I think there's a lot to unpack here about masculinity, American expansion, American mythology, mm. and politics. I guess like liberation for one
1: person isn't necessarily liberation for another, is it?
0: Well, it's all about, it's a kind of Hobbesian universe in which mm. the strong survive by stealing uh, land from one another. Mm. Can I shout out to one more Western, which actually isn't very good. Yeah, but sure. Is the kind of... The feminizing- sounds- no, no the harvey girls <laughs> do you ever seen the harvey girls i've heard of them it's with judy garland and angela lansbury oh, yeah. so i was like oh this is going to be great it's basically about that moment where this civilization comes out west. So the the cowboys have been uh, conquering the frontier, and then they have to ship women out in a train because the town needs women mm. in order for them to populate the town oh and, and and run uh, kitchens and restaurants. So Judy comes out on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, and she, who does she come up against but local uh, local slut. Angela Lansbury, because yeah, yeah, yeah. we, as we know, young Angela Lansbury, I was just like, this movie seems like it's going to be brilliant. It is a terrible film. It is disastrous. I've always said, if I had the chance to write a big Broadway musical that was like reviving an old property, I would throw away the book of the Harvey Girls, turn into a stage musical, and actually make it a good story. You know what else I've seen? What? Back to
1: the Future 3. <laughs> and you know, when <laughs> I was have a kid... How Wild
0: Wild West?
1: No, I did not see that. <laughs> as a kid, when I... I was so obsessed with Back to the Future, and when I finally got to see Back to the Future 3, and I found out it was this thing set with dust and sand. You know, you know what my mother says about a certain film? What? Too much, much sand? Says,
0: mm, too much sand. Doesn't like, like Lawrence
1: of Arabia. Too much sand. English know? patient? Too much sand. And you know, that's one thing that uh, stuck with me, you know, how your parents shape you. Well, luckily the sand here is in black and white, so it will be much harder to pick it out. So, you know what, Brian? I am ready to go. I I am on the final frontier. That's... No, that's Star Trek. Dust. Dust. The final frontier.
2: Here we go! smoke or your fire? Yes. Where do you travel? Nowhere. Remain here in Don Diego's land, you are welcome for a night, a week. Are you man? Diego? No, senor. I'm Where or is he? At his home across the river, 600 kilometers out. How far is that? About 400 miles. That's too much land for one man. Why, it ain't decent. Here's all this land aching to be used, never has been. I tell you, it ain't decent. Ma senor, it is for Don Diego to do as he chooses. This land is Don Diego's. What is that river you were talking about? El Rio Grande, but I told you that... Don Diego, tell him that all the land north of that river is mine. Tell him to stay off of it. Oh, but the land is his. Where did he get it? Oh, many years ago by Grand and Patton, inscribed by the king of all the Spain. You mean he took it away from whoever was here before? Indians, maybe. (laughs) Maybe so. Well, I'm taking it away from him. Others have thought as you, senor. Others have tried... And you've always been good enough to stop him? Amigo, it is my word. Pretty unhealthy job. Get away, man. Sorry for you, sir. How about you? You want some of it? It is not my land, senor. I will wait until Don Diego tells me what to do. All right, go tell him what happened. Tell him what I said. Take your friend's horse. We'll bury him.
0: So here we
2: are on the other side. What do you say, Duke?
1: Well, we've just crossed the Red River. Oh, it's a mighty fine river, and we've got a
2: whole mess of a lot of cattle with us, don't we, Duke?
1: We got a load of cattle and a load of men. Dagnabbit, we certainly do. Now let's talk about the film. So,
2: Bri, what do you think? Well, I, Shawnee, ooh, i got to drop this voice. Ah, Snap out of it. Snap oh, out it. of it.
0: Snap out of <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, well, of course, i would seen the film before, and I have to say, this time around, this film struck me as a masterpiece. I loved every moment of it. Did you?
1: Yeah, and I'm so glad it was filmed in black and white actually. Why? There is a darkness to this picture, both nocturnally dark, because a lot of it actually is set at night, but also there's kind of like a cold cruelty to the picture. Whereas I think like I think I think like the searchers deserves to be in colour because it's both about the majesty of the frontier. Whereas this in many ways is actually a very dark and
0: quite menacing picture. There's a kind of, I hate to say naturalism, it's not naturalism, but there's an everydayness to it in a certain way. These are men who are on a job. For the most part of the film, they're doing a job which is a cattle herd, herding nine to 10,000 head of cattle from Texas up to Missouri. We didn't really plan it out this way, but obviously at the beginning we were talking a lot about Donald Trump. John Wayne in this film, I'd forgotten how much of a businessman he is in this movie and one who operates by very shady methods, which we can get into exploring. He's building a commercial empire, and this cattle herd is not about saving people. It's about making him and the other cowboys and his employees some money by selling beef. So he is essentially, you know, the Donald Trump of his day. It's about building his brand, isn't it? It's the Red River brand, as much as the the Trump on the Trump Tower.
1: Yeah, quite literally, it's about branding. It's an integral part of the storytelling about how he marks his cattle. But it's a film about out-and-out capitalism through and through. In that way, it is an incredibly American film. I mean, capitalism
0: is the American way, really. And it's about the complicated masculinity at the heart of capitalism, the father-son relationship and the way that these men work together to bring their beef into town. But then, of course, once they get into civilization, that's where love and other kinds of relationships pop up. And just needs of a man. (laughs) We'll talk all about that, but I guess if Written on the Wind was about oil bubbling through, this movie feels like it's definitely about beef. I mean, (laughs) I have to say, we didn't say much about Howard Hawks in the first half, but this movie is expertly directed. So when I was a film
1: student, we discussed auteur theory, not in relation to someone like... Scorsese, or Godard, or even Woody Allen, or something. The very first person that we investigated was actually Howard Hawks. Because Howard Hawks was a studio director. He was a contracted, you know, paycheck director. He did the pictures he was given. You know, the director was never the person who you viewed as the visionary of the film. And, like, Howard Hawks is the person who did both Bringing a Baby and... Red River, and the two films you know, couldn't be more different. Yeah,
0: or Bogie and Bacall and To Have and to Have Not. I mean, these are movies that, stylistically, genre-wise, incredibly different. The idea
1: that a director can have a particular authorship of something while moving between different
0: styles is something we accept, but this kind of idea originated with people like Howard Hawks. And Peter Bogdanovich, someone who admired the great craftsman of the Hollywood studio system, when he made... Um, the Last Picture Show, which is about uh, the last movie that they show in town in the Last Picture Show, is indeed Red River. So there's something of the nostalgia for a, for a lost kind of way of making movies, as well as a lost mm. vision of the West.
1: I like that film, you?
0: Last Picture Show. Yeah. I mean, any movie where you get to see both um, Cloris Leachman and Sybil Shepard's breasts is one that I would enjoy. <laughs> but enough of that. Enough of breasts. Let's talk about some men. I don't know that we need to give all the details of every scene on this long, arduous, and picaresque cattle drive, but maybe you could set up... We have a little bit of a prologue, don't we, in Red River, establishing who John Wayne is playing here. He's a guy called Tom Dunson.
1: Okay, so at the start of the film, John Wayne is part of a larger pack of frontiermen, and they are heading west to California, And he decides, I'm going to split, I'm going to go down south and I'm going to find a plot of land and make it my own and raise cattle. He has a very sensuous female companion who begs to go with him and he says no. But he puts his uh, bracelet on her, which belonged to his mother, branding her effectively. And he goes off. Oh, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. He's, he's kind of claiming her for his own, isn't yeah. he? But he doesn't go off quite on his own because he's got Walter Brennan. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. So he goes off Walter Brennan.
1: And then <laughs> moments later, we see smoke in the sky. It was the burning of carcasses and wagons.
0: Yeah, the wagon train has yeah. been attacked. And the woman that he pledged to return to once he'd made his fortune is instantaneously
1: dead. Yeah. Do you remember how he discovered that? He discovers that the bracelet he gave her
0: only moments previously on the wrist of a Comanche Indian. Who he's stabbing to death in a river. You were, that was the real moment where he, you clicked into the film, I think. That no, that first... violence,
1: like, I mean, I know you don't see blood or anything, but it's one of those things, like, you know, when the MPAA determines how, you know, sexual something is because of the amount of thrust that happened in a scene. Yeah. You see him stabbing the water, but, my God, you know... Because they've fallen into the yeah. river. Yeah. He's not just, like, you know, jabbing it in. He's plunging it, raising it, plunging it. It is grotesquely violent. Yeah,
0: I mean, John Wayne, throughout this whole movie, is a man who responds to kind of anything, whether it's from the Native Americans, from the men who are working for him, or his eventually his surrogate son. He responds by slapping, shooting, punching, or stabbing, Yeah, you know? There's one lone survivor who is this boy who had wandered off to
1: get his cow, um, you know, hours previously. Mm-hmm. He comes back to find his cohort, you know, slaughtered. And he is delirious with trauma and John Wayne literally, once again, smacks sense into him.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this boy has his own gun. And Wayne essentially by slapping him is saying, be a man, learn how to use a gun. And I think he says something to him like, never trust anybody that you don't know. So, essentially, Wayne, probably feeling the guilt of having abandoned the one woman he ever loved, is now adopting this son. I think that idea of the son he never had, the birth that never came from the relationship that was cut short, it carries on. They then carry on, uh, Wayne, Walter Brennan, and the, the young boy. And do you remember, they go down south and they find this vast expanse of land. They're confronted by a
1: group of Mexicans, first of all, And they have a tense standoff in which John Wayne then demonstrates, which is a key element of the film. He draws
0: his gun faster than the other guy does and shoots him. I mean, and again, the the Trump thing is in my mind, because here we have these Mexicans coming up from the South saying, this land is ours, this land belongs to our boss, Don Diego. And Wayne and the Mexicans have this debate about ownership and property and whose land it is. And they say, well, he was he was seated this land by the king of Spain. Yeah. And Wayne says something along the well, lines he of... He says, like, well, this guy took it from the Indians and I'm taking it from him. Yeah. And it's basically saying all property is theft. The strongest one who can seize whatever power he has can seize it. And bam, I'm going to shoot the guy. Go tell Don Diego that this, everything, you know, north of the Rio Grande... Here now is my land.
1: And then there's that brilliant hypocrisy, which you still see amongst the the right of the U.S. today, where you dignify a man's death with a burial and a quotation from the Bible, you know, to, like, somehow give honour to the grotesque act you've just done.
0: Yeah, throughout the film, whenever Wayne shoots somebody, we then see the next morning as he buries him and reads the same biblical quotation, and, and sort of almost acting as if, his need of killing them was not a choice, a volitional act on his part, but just was something that had to happen. What did you think was the attitude of the film overall to Wayne's character? It's not uncomplicated in the sense that he's not just the hero here. He is presented from the start as someone who, not only does he steal this land, he later seems to steal other people's cows and not and not care all that much. He drives his employees like a tyrant. Yeah, they and, say
1: they were a tyrant. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean... You know, the film is; it does not have a
1: rosy-eyed view of the frontier exactly, but we see this man morph from an ambitious, you know, venture capitalist... Yeah, yeah. At, who, ...who, you know, promises a reward for his men to somebody who uses his ambition to undermine the standards of living, of care, of quality, of honour to the people that he's taken into his uh, trust. And we see him become the unscrupulous businessman.
0: It's it's almost as if he's saying, look, if I play by the rules, we'll never get ahead. I am the rules, is essentially what he's saying. So, um, as you say, they have this dream of building the Red River Ranch, and he he has this almost mystical brand that he comes up with, right? Which is his name, Dunson, the D, and the the kind two... The swirling symbol, it's like the two banks of the Red River. And little boy Matthew Garth, the adopted son, says, well, there should be an M in there as well. I mean, I I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but at the beginning, they've only got one bull, which belongs to John Wayne, and they got one cow, which belongs to the boy. So it's almost like the union of boy and man is what's going to populate this entire 10,000 head herd that they're eventually going to build. You know what I find weird, okay, growing up in the farmland? Yeah.
1: It takes a while, I know cattle breed and everything, but it takes a while to, like, just state a cow. They only give birth to one at a
0: time. You know? Well, okay, yeah, sure, but 15 years go by. And that is quite And an... I'm sure they got a few more in the meantime, but <laughs> But it's quite an elegant and this is yeah. where I think Howard Hawks's direction. Do you know this was the first western he ever directed? Oh my god, it's so it, it looks like he's been doing it for years. And beautifully assured panoramic shots. Come and on, the amount of animals on that set. Literally, it seems like I mean, it seems like thousands of cows. I'm sure it's only hundreds, but only it's, It's a lot of cows. Men on horses, driving them around. It's pretty impressive. Um, Okay, so we jump 15 years ahead, and now the little boy has grown up. You wanna say anything about Monty Cliff's character of Matt or the way he plays the role? Well, you know, he plays the role in, in the way that many kind of method
1: actors would play in which you're looking at them, but you're also wondering what's going on behind the eyes. He's
0: got all these facial tics and gestures. He's like constantly thumbing his nose and pulling out his cheek. I mean, he looks almost like a beatnik or somebody lost on the... Isn't that what
1: method acting gave? Where like it wasn't just about delivering the lines, as it was about the internal action and reaction. And you're both fascinated by him and drawn to him because he is a very
0: sexy character. Oh my god. Yes. His character of Matt is quite dangerous, because it's established early on that he's a really good shot, and he's really fast with the gun. He's got a pretty face, he's got a soft manner. He doesn't say a lot. He looks all the time. He's constantly watching what Wayne is doing. You can sense that he has a growing resistance to what his father figure is doing. You've seen a few Montgomery Cliff movies now. You're maybe not quite as in love with him as I clearly am, but do you understand his appeal as a performer? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he
1: has that insouciant quality to his acting, which, I mean, I I should respond to... It's also kind of a coldness, and uh, Montgomery Clift is a person where
0: you are wondering what's going on the entire time. He's conflicted all the time, isn't he? But he's conflicted
1: in a way in which he's almost sly about it.
0: Yeah, but it's like you want to help him. Like, you want to just take him and say, what is going on inside that tortured head of yours? I feel that way with nearly every role that he plays, you know? Yeah. Okay, so once we jump ahead 15 years, they've actually built a relatively successful cattle ranch, but there has been a historical calamity known as the Civil War. If anybody doesn't know what the Civil War is, go watch Gone with the Wind, and you'll be treated with a completely inaccurate (laughs) representation. But um, (laughs) they've been living in Texas. The South has gone to shit. There is no money in the South. So basically, there's no one to buy John Wayne's beef anymore. And they've got to move these nine to 10,000 head of cattle up to uh, Missouri. We're going to bring these cattle to Missouri and sell it for beef. <laughs> yeah, and he says something like... Missouri. They all say Missouri. Yeah, I know. know. And he says something like, hungry people are going to grow strong on this beef. So it's like he's... And Walter Renz, then... <laughs> Yeah, sure they are. <laughs> but he's like, "See, I can do it too." <laughs> they've got this. They've got this idea that by making money off this beef, they're also feeding the nation. You know, it's it's that same grandiosity about how business is somehow for the public good, not just for your own personal. And that day. is why the western is such an American genre. Yeah, but this is an especially commercial western because often the hero in westerns, like the sheriff or somebody like that. This man is not a law enforcement agent. He is a commercially-minded entrepreneur. So they gather all these guys together. They head off on this epic cattle journey. Maybe just uh, we could highlight a few of the other people. So there's another sexy cowboy who kind of joins in with them with the incredibly gay name of Cherry Valence. I mean, it wouldn't be out of place in Showgirls, that name, <laughs> right? Um, he's the one who Monty and he have that really phallic conversation where they're fondling each other's guns. It's a good-looking gun you are about to
2: use back there. Can I see it? Maybe you'd like to see mine. Nice. Awful nice. You know, there are only two things more beautiful than a good gun. Swiss watch or a woman from anywhere. You ever had a good Swiss watch? Go ahead, try it. Hey, that's very good.
1: Uh, Hey, that's good too. Well, even before that scene, there's this part where, like, they all kind of meet and they all kind of gather in the circle. And you know what it's like, okay? You know when you're out and about, and you meet some what, friends? What, in the Club? In Da Club, or Da Bar, or whatever. <laughs> and you meet a friend, and you're with a friend, and your friend has a gorgeous friend you have not met before. And your friend's talking, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, and what's your name? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like the new guy
0: has has rocked up and he's, you know, a bit of crumpet. And he and Monty are sizing each other up. They both because have they're heard of each other. they both babes as well. They both heard of each other and they both heard that they're a fast shot. And then they kind of go off to the side. Oh, and... what a shame that they're both bottoms. <laughs> Who says? <laughs> they, well, they both know their way around a pistol. That's what Walter Brennan, who becomes the kind of comic sort of chorus through the whole movie offering side commentary, says, Mark my words, those two are going to tangle soon as you can say Jumpin' Jehoshaphat or something along those lines. He doesn't say Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. <laughs> They'll have more holes in their bread than pumpernickel. No, that's a, <laughs> he I doesn't is. say that either. Sadly, I think one of the deficiencies of the film is actually that this relationship between Monty Clift and Cherry Valens, it sort of simmers and then it kind of goes out of the plot. They are definitely two studs looking to prove themselves. They have a friendship and an attraction and a bond, but then Cherry kind of leaves the story. Did you find that disappointing? (sighs) No, actually I didn't. It's about boyish
1: infatuation with another boy, Mm. you know? And how that misdirected lust... And eventually finds the direction it's supposed to go in. Which is
0: into the feminine. <laughs>
1: yeah. And can I just say, yes, there are only two women in this film. The first one, who dies pretty quickly, is totally in charge of her own sexuality and is an active, eager and willing woman to go on this journey and sadly she doesn't make it. The second woman that we're introduced to is holding and shooting a rifle. And we're going to get to her, but we've got to get through that yeah. cattle herd. Yeah, I'm just saying, it's like... You know, the women
0: are active as these lads can be. I actually was refreshingly surprised that when the women came into the picture, how they dealt with. Just talk about this cattle journey that John Wayne brings all these guys on. He's got them to pledge that if they join up with him, they'll get their profits, but they cannot quit, no matter how long and hard this journey is going to be. And you start to understand why, because if they're moving this many cattle... They really do need a lot of people to get them going. Yeah, but then you see he becomes the typical capitalist,
1: you know, not giving the breaks.
0: It's know. like zero hours contract. Yeah, and right there's that there.
1: scene where the, you know the men the men find a watering hole and he demands they all move on. They don't have enough food. They don't have coffee.
0: The supplies they have, they're basically all on minimum wage. And you watch Monty. Again, and I think this is the subtlety of his performance. He's often silent. He's often on the side. he is say a few lines. At one point, as the men are starting to complain, he's kind of given looks to, to Wayne, like, is this really the right choice? And he says to him, I'll take your orders, but you can't tell me what to think. But, of course, it all eventually comes to a head. And I think... If I remember correctly, a few of the men have deserted. They've run away in the middle of the night. There's been all sorts of other things that have happened. A stampede, and they're running low on food, and all kinds of stuff. So some of the men just run away. But John Wayne, he kind of knows that if he lets some of them escape, then he's not exerting his will on the others. So he gets some of the guys to round up and chase the deserters and bring them back in, and then he's, he's going to hang them. And that's the point where Monty can't take it anymore. And so he pulls out his own gun, challenges Dunson, his surrogate father figure, basically takes over the entire wagon train, and they head up not to Missouri, but to Abilene. They're going to go a different way. And the key being that in Abilene, they've heard tell that there's a railroad, so there's civilization, there's people who want the beef. And they say, this is going to be a better plan, and you in your paranoid delirium just can't see it. But I think what's really interesting, this pivot point in the narrative, is John Wayne then becomes a villain. I mean, he's been a sort of morally complex character, but he's framed and filmed now in a way that he is this force that is chasing them, and if he catches up, He has pledged he's going to shoot and kill his son, Monty Cliff. And isn't that brilliant? Because, you
1: know, he begins as the hero and you believe him as the hero. And then when he becomes the villain, it feels like the natural role for him to be in. Mm. It doesn't feel like there's been a a heavy-handed, you know, flip of the coin. Everything he's doing has set him up to be villainous. Yeah. And he becomes someone that you dread. Eventually, they do find a, you know civilization in some form. They find another group of people with women with with, with women and with food and gamblers and it, all that kind of it's stuff. It's a
0: bit like they've run into the Harvey girls, I think. So we, we were saying at one point there's these kind of rouged up tarts and the men are all gamblers with top hats. And we're like, oh, look, is that uh, Angela Lansbury or maybe it's Shelley Winters. <laughs> like, but the the only woman we really get to know is a woman named Miss Millay played by an actress, I don't know, named Joanne Drew. She looks a bit like Maureen O'Hara, I would say. They have this wonderful meet-cute. It's like a little bit of a rom-com between her and Monty, but they're in the midst of, like, a Comanche invasion at the time. So, you know, she is
1: um, aiming with her rifle and shooting, and then she gets shot with an arrow. She gets basically gets pinned to the wall, you know, with through, an arrow. Through her dress and her flesh. Yeah, through her shoulder, you know, and um, Monty's basically like, I told you so. You told you to stay down, didn't I? And it, it, it's kind of brilliant in the sense that she kind of, like, it's like you know when you spill something on a white shirt, it's like, oh fuck. And then he kind of cuts her out of it, you know, and he pulls the arrow out of
0: her flesh. And not only that, babe, do you remember he says maybe there's poison on the end of his oh arrow, my so God. he sucks her wound with his mouth. Yeah, that's what I thought you thought. It's gonna hurt.
2: Like they say, this'll hurt you more than it does me. Oh, no, this will hurt you. <sighs> you were right. It did Sometimes there's that poison. It's it's too bad to, to put you to so much trouble. I Here. Hold you got this. You got blood on your cheek. Is it gonna make you faint? I hope not. At least at least not until I've done something I've been warning to do.
0: It's brilliant. It's hot as well. Yeah. So she is instantaneously <laughs> smitten. She's like, who is this man? And he's kinda wary of her. Again, I think you hit on something really insightful earlier where you said he's essentially been this adolescent boy who's raised in a world of men. He's had this sort of weird adolescent attraction to another guy. He's very comfortable in this masculine world. The sexual attraction of this woman is like the first stirrings of any of that he's felt, and he's not sure quite what to do at first, yeah? They have this scene. She's kind of asking everybody. She's asking Walter Brennan for whatever information she can get about who Matt Garth is and why he's not attracted to her. Of course, we're thinking, well, Monty's pretty conflicted. But she goes out and she finds him. He's he's wandering in the misty woods because he's worried that John Wayne's going to come get them. And they have this kind of... I mean, I think it's implied that they have some hanky-panky yeah, yeah. out there in the woods. You know, I
1: once sucked a uh, splinter out of a friend's thumb in the middle of a bar before. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And... But anyway, back to the back to the story, though. <laughs> This is one of the scenes where I thought John Wayne's villainy was very much a great aspect of the story, because he's out there and we have a feeling of dread, which they also have a feeling of dread, is that is that Dunson has shown up and he's there to kill them, and there is there is a there is a real scare, like because
0: because he has become the villain. But as Miss Millay, the love interest, is is astute at pointing out, all Monty can talk about is this guy Dunson, and even he has praise for him. He's like, yeah. He's trying to kill me, but he's the only one who believed we could make it on this cattle herd. I've taken over, yes, but it's all been... He built it up himself from his bare hands. And she says, it sounds like you love him, and he loves you. Mm. It is this very complicated father-son love competition thing, and she zeroes in on it. To cut a long story short... Under Monty's leadership, the guys do bring the um, cattle to Abilene, and there's joyous celebration. Everybody in Abilene is ready to eat some beef. They've they've only had beans or God knows what. And they sell the cattle for
1: $22 a head. Initially, they were all going to be sold for $2 a head. Do you remember that?
0: Yeah, we see Monty grow, and this is another lovely scene, that scene where he does the business negotiation, because he's suddenly having to do all this stuff that feels very adult, negotiate the price with the trader, and he is essentially now the boss. Um, So it could all end happily here in Abilene, but we have to have this final confrontation where John Wayne comes with a bunch of other roughnecks that he's rounded up, and we get that kind of classic western showdown, this time, however, between the evil father gone bad and the son who has supplanted him. What did you make of this kind of final showdown? Did it pack a punch? Did it did it end the film well for you? Or yes, absolutely. In what sense? Describe what happens. Well,
1: what happens is is that John Wayne shows up to confront him in the way that he has taught his son, which is to draw the gun, be a man, be a man, get there faster, whatever. And you know, John Wayne, also being a man of his own integrity, would never shoot a man who's not holding his. Well, that's not true. But he would never shoot a man in a duel who's not you know, holding his gun or has his back turned to him or whatever. So basically, he uses his gun to, like, taunt this boy. He shoots his hat off. He shoots the ground beside him. He grazes. he grazes his cheek with a bullet, you know? And and all the while, Matthew refuses
0: to draw his gun. It's Christ-like. And it's, again... Turn the other cheek. And this is Monty as a new kind of man and a new kind of actor. I mean, the whole... 50s and 60s, like, young people challenging their elders in a different way, you know? But Eventually, they do come to blows, so they drop the guns, and Wayne slaps Monty to the ground in an echo of the way that he did the same thing to him when he was a kid. Monty fun- punches and fights back, and they really get into it. It's a complete Oedipal brawl, and who stops them? Miss Millay, she stops... And also, she
1: grabs that rifle again. And basically talking sense into them.
0: Well, she says, you both love each other. Yeah. Will you
1: just please figure that out yeah. and admit it? And, you know, Dunson you know, knows that Matthew's going to marry this woman at some point. Can I just point out for a moment that in a previous scene where she meets Dunson, he asks her to give him a son. Yeah. But isn't it funny how, like give me a son. Well, she marries his son, effectively.
0: Well, what happens is that scene where she meets Wayne, it's clear she's in love with Monty Clift. She doesn't want him to be killed. And she basically says, to save this man I love, I would bear you a child if that's really what you want. Mm. And he can see that that isn't right, yeah. you know? Yeah. And in the end, Monty is sort of welcome back into the fold. I mean, it's interesting. You think of like, the return of the prodigal son. In a way, this is the return of the prodigal father. Mm. Like the father who has gone too far into moral turpitude sort of returns to the fold and sort of gives up his power. There's something about Lear in it as well. And it ends quite happily. It's It's a 1948 ending. Yeah, when you compare it to The Searchers, where John Wayne is a similar character but way darker, he ultimately, John Wayne at the end of The Searchers, can't. Rejoin the community, right? He has to just go wandering off as the lone man because he just isn't temperamentally capable of being with other people. He's too damaged. This man in Red River is at least nominally able to rejoin, become an elder statesman figure, and watch as his surrogate son and new wife carry on the line. And we see them and and bask in their huge fortune. Yeah, they're going to be so rich. Their fortune's going to be huge. It's, They're going to be tremendous, tremendously rich. And that brand will mean everything. So the brand now becomes D and M for Dunson and Matthew. And the Red River D becomes the greatest brand in American history. It's going to
1: be so good. <laughs> it's going to be the
0: best brand ever. So, Red River, would you recommend people to see it, even if they are not... Yeah, it was great, Brian, what can I say? Good. Yeah. All right, well, that was the third episode of our Male Gaze series. We are going to go to a completely other kind of film with our next one. We're
1: going to a completely different planet, as it were. (laughs) The planet
0: Transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. (sighs) I've seen clips of it, and I know yeah. some of the songs, but I have never seen the Rocky Horror Picture Oh my show. god, you're going to love it. It's a film about every kind of gender identity. Well, It's I... about transgression and loving it. <laughs> and, of course, in our usual wonderful timing, we have decided, to, you know, Halloween has already passed... We decided to skip Rocky Horror Picture Show and give it to you in November, ladies yeah, why and gentlemen. Not? Why the hell no? We believe in you know curatorial duties rather than you know cashing in on some holiday nonsense. Don't let the calendar be a cage. And who cares if um, there's been a television remake uh, that's just come out? Maybe you all saw it. Ma- I haven't seen it. Maybe
1: it's great. I'm all
0: for remakes and reimagining and reinventing. And I'm all for Barry Bostwick, so I can't wait for that. Yeah. Uh, watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show to get ready for our next episode, and we will see you with our thoughts on that film in two weeks' time. If you want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, isn't that right, Sean? Yeah, we're at Broad
1: Appeal Pod. We also have individual Twitter handles. I'm at Sean McGovern X, and Brian is at BA Speaks. We also have a website, broadappealpod.com, and you know you can find us on Stitcher or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. As long as you press that button subscribe. And you know what else? Give us a review.
0: Nobody else does. Yeah, please give us a review. We (gasps) certainly would appreciate it. I'll give you my dentures if you'll give us a review. (laughs)
2: Alright, partner. Let's go off into this shit. Yeah,
1: let's get up on that horse and go and have some beans and burnt coffee.
2: (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.
1: All the people down the street, whoever you meet, say I'm a bad boy. Say I'm a bad boy
2: Say I'm a bad boy
1: Even dear old dad
2: When he gets mad Says I'm a bad boy Says I'm a bad boy Says I'm a bad
1: boy